Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont's schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Within the last hour, the World Health Organization announced that COVID-19, or the coronavirus, is now officially a pandemic, telling health experts to focus less on containing the virus and more on stockpiling materials, getting hospitals ready to handle an influx of patients, and enacting social distancing policies. The director general of the World Health Organization said, quote, We are deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. Well, COVID-19 has now arrived in Vermont. School closures have already begun, with Middlebury College announcing yesterday that students uh, had to leave campus. And it didn't take long before the issue became personal for me. My son is a college freshman in Boston, was just informed by his university that he must leave campus and that all classes will transition to be held online. This weekend, I complained to my older brother that it seemed like closing colleges and some of the other draconian measures that were being taken were an overreaction. Why, I ask, are we doing all this for a flu, a regular disease that is sometimes deadly? My brother was not impressed with my take on the epidemic and proceeded to walk me through the issues and school me on some things that I did not know. And I have to admit that he may know a little more than me about this. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he's also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine. So for the benefit of our listeners, I asked Steve if he would be willing to move our conversation to the Vermont conversation, and he graciously agreed. So Steve Goodman, welcome to the Vermont conversation. Hi, and thanks for having me. (laughs) So... I Just within the last day, I've had two conversations with very intelligent people who said verbatim the same thing. This is an overreaction, the closing the schools, uh, which is what I said to you over the weekend. How do you respond to that? Well, 
this is the luxury of having lived in the society that has not faced uh, something like this for many, many decades, uh, maybe almost a century. Uh, basically, if we start, if one understands exponential growth, and we don't have to guess at it, we've already seen what's happened in China, in Korea, in Italy, and it's now happening all over Europe. The time, if you wait to move, when it's clear that there's something to worry about, it's too late. So the time, if one is wondering whether one needs to take extreme measures, that's exactly when you take extreme measures. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that folks who have not studied the numbers um, are wondering whether uh, these, these measures in the face of what seem like very, very few cases um, are really needed. Uh, we, we, have, we already have an example from, from uh, China. So there were, there were two places that moved. Uh, there were obviously many locations that, that suffered the epidemics. Uh, Wuhan, which we've all heard about, started taking what we would consider to be extreme measures when there were uh, about 500 cases and 23 deaths, um, which compared to the population of Wuhan and of China is comparatively nothing. Their epidemic got totally out of control. And of course, we're dealing with the consequences of it right now. A neighboring city, Guangzhou, started making its moves when there was uh, just seven cases and no deaths. The peak of their epidemic was approximately one twentieth, or actually more, maybe even one fiftieth. I'm looking at the curves right now of what they were in Wuhan, and we've heard very little about Guangzhou. So, the once you're in an epidemic, an exponential growth situation, once you notice what's going on, you. It is lost. It's lost. This epidemic, we have a completely virgin population. It's, it's doubling every six days. It's happening right now in Vermont. We're not seeing it because we're not testing, but it's doubling every six days. And there's an invisible reservoir that we're not seeing because of the testing and because many of the symptoms are mild. So what about this question that... It's just a flu, which, you know, is often inflicts, uh, you know, a heavy toll as well. But why is this flu, uh, if we can call it that, uh, different than the conventional flus that we're familiar with? Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, it's a flu in the sense that it can be very quickly, uh, uh, it's highly contagious. Um, some of the symptoms are quite similar, you know, flu, uh, I'm sorry, fever, cough, uh, respiratory distress, etc. But the flu, there, there are two huge differences. One, the, the, the glaring one is the case fatality rate. Um, the flu case fatality rate is estimated to be about 1 in 10,000, or about 0.1%. The mortality rate for this disease is almost certainly sort of overall not less than about one percent there have been some estimates in various places that it's as high as three percent um, it's very unclear because of the problem with testing and it 
depends on whether you define the mortality rate as the mortality rate of those who present to the medical care system, that is, who are sick enough, and those who are infected. So probably the, you know, whatever the two, three percent is those who are pretty seriously ill, uh, somewhere between half and one percent, probably closer to one is, is a broader estimate, but that is still 10 times the flu, 10 times the flu. So right away, 10 times as many people die who get the, get in, get the disease. And then you have the problem that the that the number of people in the United States who can get the flu is actually limited, even though we're going to have 15 million, already have about 15 million cases this year in, in, in this country, and that represents about 5% of the population getting the flu. But we have flu shots, we have years and years of of partial immunity built up over exposure to the flu. So not everybody in the country is susceptible to the flu. So that's why it crests at around 5%. Right now, 100% of this country is susceptible to this virus. So we have a virus that's probably in the range of 10 times as uh, fatal and potentially a population that is 20 times bigger in terms of susceptibility. So 20 times 10 is 200. Now that's an extreme number, but that's why people are scared. Uh, Angela Merkel and some other European leaders have been putting out that between 40 and 70% of their population is going to be infected. Again, that's compared to 15%, uh, I'm sorry, 5% for the flu. So it's different in those two ways. It is, it kills a lot more people for those who get infected, and it's going to affect a lot more people. And that makes it, that's why we're doing what we're doing. So in the United States now, um, the official statistics is that the total number of cases of coronavirus is just over a thousand and uh, about 30 people have died. What do you make of those numbers? Do they bear any resemblance to what you think is actually going on? Uh, well, the deaths probably, the numbers of cases are a joke. We are testing almost nobody. The the um, uh, Koreans are testing on the order of 10,000 a day. I think we still have the number of tests just in the few thousands over all the weeks and months that we've had this. So we have no idea how many people are actually infected. Again, about 80% is the current estimate, but these things are changing literally by the day. 80% of people will have pretty mild symptoms, particularly the younger you are, and you won't be able to distinguish it from mild flu or even a, a bad cold, even though a cold has more uh, sneezing and and congestion than, than this disease, so a doctor might know the difference. So for every case that's currently diagnosed, the, the criteria for being tested right now are that you have to be pretty sick. Uh, the official at, at Stanford, where I am, uh, you cannot get tested if you're not hospitalized, if you're not a candidate for hospitalization. They say they are trying to broaden those criteria, but, but again, by the time you get tested and diagnosed, it's a little too late. And, that, and it does nothing for people who want to know if they're infected so they can protect all the people that they are around. So 
if the if the ones who are being uh, admitted to hospitals or have serious illness represent just one fifth of the total, then whatever number you're seeing right now, the one thousand, just multiply it by five right away, just right away. But then that, of course, doesn't tell you about the reservoir beyond that. So we we have a minimum probably of about five to seven thousand cases, and I'm betting it's uh, very much more than that. And given that the, the epidemic is completely unchecked at the moment and is doubling every six days, that number will multiply by uh, 32 over the next month and then another factor of 32. So it's going to multiply by 32 times 32 or basically 1,000 in two months. Which So let's talk about testing. Um, you know, the WHO cited what it called the inaction of governments to respond to this. And yesterday, the New York Times ran a shocking story about the Centers for Disease Control ordered a University of Washington lab uh, to stop testing for coronavirus, although they were in the middle of a flu study that they were offering to adapt to this. So if this is an emergency, how can it be that the CDC is trying to shut down opportunities to test for this and, as I understand it, rolled out a botched test for it. <laughs> well, I, I can't 100% answer for what a bureaucratic stenosis uh, created the CDC response. I, I will say that that is a function of the lack of, uh, of appreciation that we are early on. This happened early on, uh, about a, a month ago. Uh, that we're in a true public health emergency here. Uh, the notions of ethics that they invoke to prevent the testing, what had basically happened um, is that these uh, the samples that they had were people that were tested as part of just a flu surveillance study. So they had all these nasal swabs and whatever, um, and, and they were tested under the, uh, under the rules of of their test results being confidential, and they'd be tested for flu. The scientists realized that they could test those same samples for coronavirus, and then they could notify both the people and the health department. So the CDC said no, and other people said no, you can't do that because the people didn't consent to being uh, to their identities being revealed. Uh, but when you think of what the ethics is around protection of individuals, and yes, you want to protect them against uh, you know breaches of confidentiality under normal circumstances. But these are not normal circumstances. So the CDC should have understood that there's, a, in a sense, a higher public health and ethical calling. And ironically, in this case, it wasn't just protecting the population. It was protecting these people and their loved ones. So this is this has um, is a symptom of a broader lack of appreciation, which I think was also reflected by the early comments you started with, that this is a impending catastrophe in the making. We have a tsunami that is rolling in, and yes, the 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 depth of the ocean at our feet at the beachhead is only about a few inches right now. But it's rolling in, and we don't have to guess because we're seeing it happening all over us. And the, the, the lack of testing and the lack of urgency in the preparations uh, in not getting all the uh, 
elements of the country uh, aligned very early on is a reflection of, A, a, a lack of understanding at the top of what was coming and a lack of understanding of, uh, of what it means to, to convert to sort of an emergency pandemic uh, men, you know, uh, mentality, sort of being on a war footing. And, and, and the dismantling of the public health pandemic response apparatus within the government over the past two years has greatly contributed to this. So Fox News host Trish Regan uh, said in, a, in a, what has become a viral video that the coronavirus scare, as she calls it, is a way to create mass hysteria to spark a market sell-off. She calls it the new impeachment. And Trump, of course, is saying this may all just go away on its own by April. What is your response to that, and, and what are the real-life uh, effects of that kind of messaging? Well, <laughs> I can't say that uh, – I, I don't know uh, particularly what the effect of uh, Reagan's commentary is going to be, but I will say that to shift from a sense of normality to a sense of, as I say, sort of a wartime footing – when a lot of the normal rules of life have to be changed, takes leadership. That takes leadership. It takes somebody addressing the nation and saying, this is what we face. This is what we need to do. And the lack of that from the, the country's president makes it very difficult for people to accept the and have to decide on their own what they do, what the, their response to this epidemic, which actually requires, as we're seeing right now, really profoundly changing the way we live for a little while at least. And we can't do that if we don't have an atmosphere of collective commitment and sacrifice and can do itness and and it's and it's going to be a burden it's going to be very difficult it's difficult right now and we've seen nothing the the number of cases we faced is nothing compared to what we have already seen in other countries and as i say the tsunami's rolling in so the the failure of leadership and communication and clear communication and concern makes it very difficult for governments for community health leaders for individual families and parents to accept and prepare for what we know is going to happen. In just the minute that we have left, what can we reasonably expect that public health measures can succeed in doing? Oh, boy. Um, well, the, 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 the memeable phrase is flatten the curve. So what we want to do, we, we cannot stop this in the sense of we, we, in preventing many, many thousands of people from getting sick and dying. But how many thousand that is and how fast that comes, we can affect. It's called flattening the curve. That is spreading out the cases uh, over a longer period of time, keeping the peak lower so our healthcare system can accommodate it. Really, one thing that is only now getting some attention is this epidemic threatens to overwhelm our hospitals. I mean, literally, they're gonna, there are more cases and ICU beds predicted at our current rate of increase than we have in the country. But if we can slow that down, 
That's all these cancellations. That's all they're doing. Just slow it down. Spread it out. Keep the peak lower than it can be. And we saw they did it in, in China, which means taking measures when it doesn't seem like when, as they say, the ocean is only at covering your ankles. Um, if we can slow it down and spread it out, we can manage it and we can keep the fatality rate lower than it would be if we overwhelm the healthcare system. And that's the most we can hope. And whether closing school is an overreaction, I w- I'm much more worried about underreaction because, again, when you double every six days, uh, the, the failure to act is much, much more serious than the inconvenience of overreacting. So I, I would love it if we look back in a month or two and say, we didn't exactly need to do that. Well, I wouldn't say didn't need. We, it, it, the worst did not happen. Because if the worst didn't happen, maybe that is because we're taking the actions we're, we're taking now. Okay. Well, Steve Goodman, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. Been a pleasure. Okay. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he's also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine, and he's also my brother. I'm David Goodman. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. Stay tuned.